<clears throat> so uh, this morning I want you to, to take a moment and think about your grandfather. Just choose one if you have multiple. I don't know. Maternal if you feel like you need a prompt. I want you to think of like three words that you would use to describe your grandfather. Like what three words would you use to describe your grandfather? Yeah, that was more than three words. Okay. So, <laughs> so, yeah. All right. So, so rich. I am. You don't have to do three. Um, okay. Cheerful. Okay. Loud. Okay. Bold. Old school. Okay. <laughs> okay. Wise. Okay. Stubborn. And industrious. Okay. Solid, okay. <laughs> Good job, Tom. Good job. <laughs> What'd you say? Italian. Italian? <laughs> yeah, hard. Hardcore Italian. There we go. Good job, short. <laughs> Resourceful. Okay. And as, as you kind of think about, you know, these terms and, and uh, these thoughts, you know, um, we started talking last week, you know, really just kind of did more of a, a survey kind of background uh, for First Timothy 3, um, and I uh, kind of titled this like meeting the needs of the local church. So, uh, you know, we, we only got through verse 1, but we looked at a lot of verses kind of in Acts, and I'll just do a summary as we kind of go through there, but as we think of like... Um, this group that, that in 1 Timothy 3 is called overseers. We saw, as Luke describes them, as elders. We see it in other places that you have kind of both of these terms. And we'll get to um, another group next week as well in 1 Timothy 3. So uh, just to kind of understand like how that developed. But again, this understanding of the elders was really, if you look in the Old Testament, um, at who the elders were, you know, so kind of maybe even drawing off of like what they would have known um, were really the, I would say, the grandfathers of kind of the tribes. And so it was even selected, you know, in, in different times where, you know, God told Moses or, you know, different, and depending on who, who was asked to do this, was to select among the elders, you know, it might have been 70 men to do, you know, to form this kind of council or group, or God would demonstrate this thing to these people or give this revelation to this group. But it was really kind of brought up from like, right, the, the not just the fathers, but you would think even kind of the, the grandfathers or maybe even the great-great-grandfathers, those that would be kind of the patriarchs 
in the group. And that term is still kind of used when you think about this idea of elders. It was those who are older. And so kind of being brought from that. So last week we did kind of a quick overview. We saw in Acts um, that looking at overseers or elders really were not mentioned um, early on in the early church. We only saw this term apostles and disciples. And again, this is kind of around 30 AD um, when the church kind of, you know, saw its beginnings. They were mentioned as part of like Jewish leadership in Jerusalem. It was the scribes and the elders and the high priests came together. That was even in, in chapter four. But even in that, that early time, you don't see that kind of necessarily as a developed group amongst the church. We saw that everyone shared the needs of others until issues kind of came up and the apostles had designated men to assist in these organizational matters. So up until that point, it was again, just kind of the burdens and needs were brought uh, um, around to each other. Later, again, going kind of almost 20 years later, 15, 20 years later, after we see this early beginnings of the church, when Paul and Barnabas kind of go along in their missionary journey, um, that elders were appointed or installed by Saul and Barnabas um, at the end of the first missionary journey. Shortly after that, you see when Paul, and actually shortly before that, um, Paul and Barnabas sent money down to Jerusalem where there was this group of elders. After that first missionary journey, we talked about this, where it was, what do we do with these Gentile converts? And so went and talked to the apostles and the elders. And so the function of the elders were kind of there to, you know, um, give weight behind these issues that were coming up. Why in Jerusalem? Because that was kind of where the center of the church happened. And so by this time, you see this group of um, elders. Again, we don't know the makeup specifically, but that's just, again, the, the general designated term. Those who are older, right, were a group to give wisdom and weight and authority behind um, uh, this issue. What should we do? One group said one thing, Paul and his compatriots said something else, and they kind of said, well, this is what should happen and should be done. Um, And then, you know, uh, like seven or eight years later, when Paul's kind of done with his third missionary journey, we see them, him meeting the elders, um, the Ephesian elders, when he was coming back uh, before he was going back to Jerusalem, before he would get arrested and go to Rome. So, uh, he met with them. Obviously, elders had been established. He, that, that was a habit. We didn't see that as a habit in other places. It just wasn't mentioned by Luke, but we obviously saw that it happened. And there were elders that he talked to, and uh, he described these men as overseers in the church. And we're going to look at some of those verses again as we kind of think about what this looks like. And then Paul writes to Timothy So that was kind of in 57 AD where he meets with the elders in Ephesus. After he's out of the Roman prison, he writes to Timothy about overseers here in 1 Timothy 3 in about 64 AD. So you think like now it's like 30 years, 35 years-ish from when the church started. And now you see this group, you know, this designated group of elders, overseers. And we'll look at a couple other examples, um, like I said, as we develop this more a little bit. Uh, next week um, uh, as we get further on to 1 Timothy 3. But we see again in verse 1 of chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, right? when Paul is specifically addressing Timothy, knowing he's in Ephesus, knowing that they have a group of elders already established because he met with them seven years ago. We don't assume that they 
are a defunct group, that there still would be this, this group of elders. He says, again in verse 1, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. And we looked at those words and kind of all those things, what it means to desire and, and to aspire to. But again, as you think of like when Paul talks about certain things, he, say, he gives an example of, of what should we be or what should we look at and things that we should steer away from, right? And so kind of both angles. We saw that in Philippians 2. We saw that in Ephesians 5. And that's kind of, again, the same paradigm that, that Paul uses uh, here. And so aspiring to be uh, an elder. And again, using the term elder or overseer, two different terms. Um, the elder word is presbyteros, where Presbyterian, presbytery comes from. We're not going to get too deep into that. And overseer is episkopos, but you get episcopalian. Kind of, you get, kind of hear the terms that are even used within um, uh, different denominations but those two are used synonymously with the group that uh, is being described. In Philippians 1.1, Paul writes to all the saints uh, in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. So we have two distinct groups, overseeing and deacons. And we'll talk about that again more next week, what deacons are. First uh, Peter 2.24, uh, um, Peter writes, He himself, meaning talking about Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we may die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now return to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. So that term for shepherd and overseer is described of Christ himself, used the same way to describe this group that Timothy is talking about. And so uh, in Scripture and in, in First Timothy and in other places, we see that it's, it's a group, right, that provides counsel and insight, helps make big decisions, and provides stability within the church. Um, interestingly, like, this term can also be translated as visitation, sometimes, like, in the day of visitation. But you kind of have, like, an understanding of, like, this overseer is someone who... Uh, um, Again, looks over, but also kind of visits and spends time with uh, the, the body of Christ or those that are within his care. And so because it is a good deed, the role should have qualifications attached to it. Um, and so, you know, unlike some positions in the world where it might just be like, you know, help wanted, you apply and you're in, right? The, the office of an um, overseer has kind of a list of qualifications. And if it is a noble aspiration, there are also noble qualities. I'll probably just skip, you know, I have, you know, we could go through like different views on how uh, different churches look at um, what elders are, how it like, you know, is seen through kind of the body of Christ, and maybe there's time for that a little bit later. Um, but there's not necessarily a single paradigm about how a church carries out the function of elders. We just see that they exist. Um, and there are qualifications for elders, um, how uh, they are um, appointed um, is, you know, only through a few verses on how Paul either instructs Timothy or what Paul did when he went to a church. Um, so that can vary from church to church, we would assume. Uh, how long they serve for. Um, again, what, uh, you know, are there age limits? Um, you know, and again, a pl plenty of other things that would fall under 
you know, different, different doctrines, which you would call, this would be ecclesiology. And so ecclesi, you know, this idea of the church. And so how does the church function? But when we think about, right, certain roles and, and again, different groups and people attached, you kind of like, because of your experience, you might have a, a view of um, what an elder should be, who an elder should be, how they should function. So I really want us to kind of have like just a, a balanced and healthy view of what this looks like coming from Scripture. And if you've been in multiple churches, you've probably experienced it differently, uh, what that looks like, whether... Some churches may not have elders, you know, and some may call them elders, but are they functioning as maybe elders should? Some have um, bylaws and specific, you know, clear um, requirements of elders, and again, others are more vague. But we're looking specifically at 1 Timothy 3 because I want us to understand what Paul says to Timothy as he's saying, you know, these are the qualifications that you should look like because when it comes to those who are leaders, as we think of those, you know, our fathers and even, you know, when I asked you to kind of think of your grandfather, right, um, what are the qualities that you would use to, you know, designate your grandfather? And so some grandfathers in your mind have, like, hold a high place in your heart. <laughs> some grandfathers may be in another place where you're like, you know what? He was an example of who I don't want to be. Um, and so whether, whatever it is your experience, it was your experience. And sometimes we carry on within um, how we do things, uh, our experiences and how that colors, um, you know, what we should, uh, how we should understand or even how we should think about living our own lives. But now we're going to dive into what the qualifications are for an elder. So we're going, to, we're going to go through them, but kind of go through them a little bit quickly. But I want us to just kind of pause and reflect and think, you know, why is that there? And what does that look like um, when we think about what the qualifications are for an overseer? So verse 2 in chapter 1 of Timothy uh, 3 is, Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. We'll pause right there because, you know, that's, that's enough to unpack uh, um, a lot as we go through. So the first one is above reproach. Um, this idea is to not be caught or grasped or even arrested. Um, so a clear line, right, is that there should be, the overseer should not have something that clearly stands out that can be grasped as something, right, that they are below that line. It is above this thing that would weigh them down or grab them or pull them or even arrest them. Um, and so why would this be an important quality to have? Right out of the gate. Okay. So people to listen to them. Okay. Okay. And so we're gonna we're gonna see as Paul kind of lists out some some positive qualities what an elder should be. We're also gonna see what should be qualities that does not um, designate or signify 
uh, who an overseer or elder should be as well. And so this idea of being above reproach, right, is that, um, you know, there, there shouldn't be anything, um, and I'll just kind of, you know, kind of lay my cards out before we go through it a little bit more in detail. But the, the purpose of, of elders is not just sitting as like a, a, um, in an advisory role, right? But it is in the middle of conflict. Um, when Paul is writing, and we'll look at these verses again or be reminded of these verses again, when Paul is writing, he's writing to a pastor who is deep in conflict. Um, he is, uh, when he is going to these churches, establishing elders is because there will be conflict within those churches. And so we often maybe think of like things that we're dealing with now. And for the most part, you know, our churches go through kind of, um, periods of peace, you know, and stability and other times where there are times and we've experienced it within our own church, right. Of some instability as well. And so if the elders, right, are going to be kind of in the middle of this, that they need to, again, the members of the, the elder board need to be, or the overseers, um, I, I, I'm sorry, I keep using like kind of terms that, that we inflict within like scripture of like having a board or a council. But that's kind of, you know, again, through our experiences. But this group of elders, which is not necessarily wrong, but this group of elders, right, need to be above reproach because they're going to be in the middle of conflict. And we'll talk about this a little bit later. So we're going to get to that, but he kind of lays that out as kind of the first thing as being above reproach, something that can't be caught or grasped or pointed to um, as far as this one thing, right, or many things that would bring dishonor to the church and to Christ himself. Second one is the husband of one wife um, or a one-woman man. So in other words, uh, a man who does not have multiple wives or in multiple relationships outside of the marriage. So it seems clear why this is probably something, um, you know, especially in light of the commands that Paul gave in, in different lists that he's given to not be engaged in sexual immorality. Um, but, you know, this fact that the role of an elder um, is also for men in the church to be a one-woman man. Thirdly, we see that uh, the elder or overseer is to be sober-minded. And so this can literally be applied to this, the idea of drunkenness, um, but also applied in being self-controlled and well-balanced in one's thinking. So you can think of it as far as in a physical attribute or description, particularly in contrast to someone who is imbalanced, um, or out of control through drunkenness. Uh, but more specifically, again, it can be a- applied in terms of one's thinking and how they control and conduct them li- their lives. So in other words, somebody who is level-headed. Why do you think this would be an important quality for someone who is a leader within the church? Okay. Okay. <clears throat> And why is that good? <laughs> okay. <laughs> and again, yeah, and some of it again is like when you when you talk about these qualities, you're like, well, obviously, you don't want somebody who's rash or you know imbalanced in their thinking or you know um, 
out of control. Uh, but, but when the questions come to like, well, why is that the case, right? Again, we think of like their role and, and what they're doing and, um, you know, how they are uh, making decisions. And you want somebody who is level-headed and sober in their thinking. Continuing on. Go ahead. Yeah. You just have to have a, a man that always recognizes that, that he's not been elevated to this position because of anything in him. Just the fact that the grace of God would even allow us to follow this type of pattern of leadership, knowing that we're all corrupted with pride, that, that if, we, if we think any of these men are transcendent above us, uh, or if any of us are not understanding, they have been basically gifted for this mm-hmm. inside of themselves, then there is going to be that temptation, as Clinton was saying, to kind of abuse that, not be wise, not be considering the interests of the church, considering the interests of others, considering the interests of the glory of God you know, as primary and not their position in their role, whatever calling they might get from that. So, yeah. Uh, these men aren't perfect, so to be above reproach is really the idea that you, you're dealing with any potential accusations against your character that could cause people to doubt you yeah. your ability to serve in that role. Yeah, and we kind of alluded a little bit, uh, I can't remember if it was last week or maybe even when we just were talking about, you know, submitting to, to one another and, and husbands' roles and wives' roles and things like that. But the fact that, like, we're called to a high standard, yet we live that out imperfectly. This kind of is something that when Paul, again, mentioned, this is, this is kind of what we talked about, and when mentioned in 1 Corinthians, right, there's a sin among you, right, that even the Gentiles um, <laughs> speak against. Like, there are certain things that, like, yes, that, that is a clear thing that, you know, Paul doesn't specifically even designate. It just says above reproach. And I'm glad you mentioned that, you know, again, that idea of, of being in a position of authority can even... Um, can even be corrupting. I feel like I was sharing this. Um, I had, um, after seminary, I had uh, you know, candidated at a, at a particular church, and the church had, uh, you know, I guess closed its doors. Um, it was down to a couple uh, families that were just meeting, um, and they were elders within the church, but they had sold their church property, and they wanted to replant. And so I went and met with them, and uh, with different counsel from different pastors, you know, and again, I was young, uh, but it was, it was, uh, it was, you know, it would be wise to place everyone's authority under an established uh, elders within another church uh, as we kind of planted and restarted this. And so um, that question was brought up, and I remember, you know, I, I was in California and flew out and then flew back home and, um, you know, the, one of the guys, it was actually, it was these two guys that were elders were on the phone with me. And one guy said, you know, when you mentioned that there was this relief because there was this burden that I had felt like we had, you know, kind of let the church down, let the, you know, again, the church, um, you know, pretty much dwindled down to only a few families, uh, under their oversight. Um, but then he responded and he said, and, and then I, but then I thought, you know, but I was, I'm an elder of this church, and how dare you, uh, you know, say that I shouldn't, you know, shouldn't be an elder. 
And I was kind of like, kind of like, um, you know, I don't know, reamed out, I guess, for that. And, uh, and it was like, well, I guess I'm probably not going to that church. Um, which is okay, you know, honestly. But, I mean, it was, it was a blessing. But I, I just, you know, and again, we all have our experiences. And I tr- I'm trying to, like, I have a whole bunch of notes and things that, like, I don't want to bring my own experiences. But with every church, you know, you have, like, the things that you, you see amongst men. And so we endeavor, you know, hopefully as being submissive to the Lord to do our best and right. And so there's this idea of, um, you know, understanding your place. But some, again, you know, whether it's wise or unwise, like, are you an elder for the your entirety of your life? Um, I guess, is that like a Supreme Court judge uh, or like, you know, or something like that? Um, you see like some pros to that, but then you see some others, like some have a rotation. And anyway, again, that's how, like, how, the, how it functions out. But Paul doesn't address any of that. And I think purposely to say like, well, how would you wrestle with the exactness of how these, these things are carried out? I'm just more concerned with who you have and not how you, how you necessarily do it. Um, not that they're, they're fully... Uh, separated. Um, so self-controlled is the next one. Um, this idea of showing uh, good self-decorum. Um, someone who you look at that, that has like, you know, uh, from the, that has been described maybe as a dignitary that they carry themselves well. Um, so this idea is yes, to be able to control oneself, but also kind of like looks like they have things kind of put together. Um, and so that's, that's a, that's a description that, that Paul uses. And that doesn't mean, again, we've been in churches where, um, you have to wear, I mean, you know, like I said, I've been in churches where it's like you wore a shirt and tie and, you know, you were like kind of elevated and it was almost this thing like a shirt and, you know, it was like, Hey, nice tie. Hey, that's a great tie. And you're like, I want to be a part of that group of, you know, all the leaders. So I'll start wearing a tie as well. So, um, self like decorum is not like how you dress. It could go along with that, but it's, again, how you control yourself. I mean, they didn't have ties back in Paul's day. So, but we understand that. What did you say? It was a man's necktie. I mean, you know, we had to wear them in seminary, and that was just, it was even a point of contention. We submit, you know, we wear a tie, but do we have to wear a tie for this? I mean, even even within seminarians, you know, we were still, like, students, right, like, Anyway, um, respectable. So that, that term actually comes from the word cosmos. I don't know if you've ever heard that applied. It could also be described as cosmos, as the world. Sometimes even described in the negative as worldly. Um, but that's also where we get cosmetology and cosmetics and this idea of beauty. And so um, when you hear this word you know, is translated respectable, but it is appealing or beautiful, evoking delight, admiration, or honorable. So again, we have kind of this term of respectable, but when you're around this person, right, like it brings delight to you um, in, in, this, in this kind of sense. So, um, and again, we kind of get mixed because we, you know, in t- taking a Greek word and then how would you you know, say it in English, and does that word carry the the weight and connotation of of what you're thinking of or what you you're meaning of? But again, uh, this idea that they they have this kind of outward admiration or honor that's esteemed to them. But interesting that kind of link of of that word. And then we see this word hospitable. 
Um, it's a word that takes the word of love and this word xenos, um, which is uh, to receive a guest or to entertain someone or to be hospitable. You just kind of like some, you know, put it together as they're welcoming of others. Not only are they like a delight to be around, again, not that they're funny or necessarily, you know, uh, have some sort of charm to them, but something like that is, you know, um, uh, uplifting and also welcoming of others, pulling people in, drawing people in. We get that word, uh, that word, you know, so it's philo, love, and xenos, which is kind of that hospital. We get the, the term xenophobia, if you've ever heard of that, which is, um, Taken to its end, phobia is a fear of those who are from the outside. It's almost even like outside nations is how it's applied. You only like those that are within the inside. Um, a uh, overseer should be hospitable and welcoming others from the inside. You love people who are uh, from outside of your group. And then finally is, I think finally, is able to teach so, um, again, just like it says, is, is really how it's translated, uh, is a person who is able to teach. So why would you say that that is an important quality? Because you have to be smarter than the student in most cases to teach what happens to students. Okay. Of course, you only have to stay a week ahead of the students. You only have to stay. <laughs> All right, that's why we're just doing one chapter at a time, right? So I don't, I don't know what's next, so... <laughs> Yeah. What is, what is it? You're letting me go on. Yeah, yeah, keep going. No, I mean, I think you're covering, like, some of those. Because I think it's, it's, yes, yes. no, yeah. What is the origin of the word? Would you say that? That's because if you, you know, you want to go back to what the word did he use originally, and that's, what does that mean? Yeah, so, so. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So it's it's didacticos, right? So if you think of someone who is, does is didactic, right? They're able to uh, articulate something, right? To teach something. So how does that look, right? You know, I mean, if you think of just even like in a a sense of a person who is a teacher, it's interesting that there's a there's a lot of teachers. Well, when they get in front of a group of maybe even adults, they say like, "I'm really good with third graders, but I'm terrible with adults," you know. And so, or like, I can teach this subject, but I can't teach something else. And again, it's it's. But are you able to teach and explain whatever it is that you are in your craft? If you can't explain it. Then are you teaching? Are you like? Are you uncovering? If it's confusing, then is that teaching? Right? Because we've probably all heard sermons where you're like. I don't know what I, you know, like he spoke for an hour, but I'm not exactly sure what I was supposed to pull away from that. And so um, that, that is that ability. Now, again, how, how well you're able to teach doesn't say that. And I do want to say this um, is when we look at these, these lists, it isn't a where are you on a scale? Um, he didn't say like, you know, you're, you evaluate from a one to five or a one to ten or whatever. It's really... 
are you this? Are you, would you be described as this? Or would you not be described as this? And it might be like you aren't described as this because like you're close, but not. But it's really like yes or no. Um, I remember, you know, and there's, there's different reasons why that's healthy, you know, to think about it in those terms. Um, I remember uh, um, applying for a church and they sent all the qualifications of an elder and said, why don't you rate yourself? And it was like, like, rate yourself. Like, one, I'm applying for a job. So it should be all fives, right? Um, but, you know, like, how you rate yourself is different. I mean, I just went through this with, like, a leadership evaluation where all the leaders within our school um, had to, like, send out 25 evaluations. And people evaluated you, but then you had to do a self-evaluation. And all my numbers, almost all my numbers, were lower than what people evaluated me on. So... And when I talk to people about that, they're like, well, I just think the opposite. I gave everybody, it was one out of seven. So I gave myself sevens on, you know, I should be doing this. And so we just have a different view of how even, like, we evaluate yourself, right? Um, like, agree, strongly agree. Like, I know I'm susceptible, but is that, like, once a week or once a month or once a year? Or pro- you know, um, I think even when I was doing it, like, when it was like, are you prone to anger? I had a bunch of toddlers, and I was like, man, they can really, get, you know, like... <laughs> You know, as a new father, and I don't know why now, maybe less so, maybe just because they're a little bit older, or I don't know. But anyway, you just kind of think, like, is that is that an effective way to evaluate, you know, uh, someone? So when it comes to, like, able to teach, where is that scale? Are you able to explain? Are you able to counsel? Are you able to give that? And let's, let's go back to, let's look at Titus real quick, uh, if you want to. And I'll just kind of read this, because I have a few verses that kind of pull this one together. To understand, really, what does that mean? Can you teach? So, in Titus chapter 1, starting in verse 5, Paul says to Titus, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put uh, put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, For an overseer is God's steward, we'll come to that in just a little bit, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. We're going to see, have seen some of those words. We're going to see a few more of these words. But this is kind of where the teaching kind of holds in. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. Why? So that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. Now, I just, I just want you to kind of like think, like, why should you be able to teach? Because there are people <laughs> in your midst who are getting, who, who want a platform to pull you, you know, in a different direction. We know that, right? You talk to people who go to different churches and you say like, well, I agree with you there. And can you talk to them why, where you, what, what doctrines you hold to and why you hold to them? Or is it just like, I don't know, what do we believe? Um, and so those are the things that like as the leaders of the church, right, is to give sound, sound um, do- instruction and sound doctrine, but also to rebuke those who contradict it. So you, you got to be able to explain why they're in error, <laughs> Um, and why is that, right? Because he says there's people who are insubordinate, empty talkers, those who flat out deceive. 
And they must be silenced in verse 11 since they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. And he keeps on. He says, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always evil, are liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Like that's the culture you're in. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by his works or by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. But as for you, teach what accords to sound doctrine. He just repeats that. And then he's going to go into a little bit more detail. So you just kind of think, like, that's the that's who he's dealing with, especially going to kind of like a new church, and I want you to appoint elders. Why? Because if you don't have a group of people that are shepherding this church, it's going to, like, start going, you know, in a whole bunch of different directions. So we need to make sure, right, big thing, we're united. One mind, one body, one purpose under one spirit, because there will be these... Separate spirits. All right, Quentin, I know you had your hand up. So. <laughs> right, you know, and that's, that's again, earlier than this, right? It's one of the, the earlier letters. Why? Because the tongue is a fire, right? And it can set the whole world on fire. Like, you slip, you start teaching this thing again. Why? Like, it might be as Randy said, because those who are um, in power might use that to their gain or to their leverage, or it may be, make them prideful. And so they start teaching with things that are um, helpful to them and what um, helps them and gets people. You know, Paul had to address that when he talked about um, Apollos and Peter and Paul, right? Like, that wasn't necessarily like, Three different groups, they're all like like-minded believers, but then just again, the fact that like we can't even be separated within our own ranks, we need to make sure that we're like-minded in what, what we're teaching. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes we elevate men who are good at teaching, but not examining their whole character. But then we also know that their the gift of teaching is not limited just to these men. There are people able to teach that may not desire the, the office of an elder. Yeah. Or see, or then you have men of character who are able to teach that are still as useful as we see in the deacons. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And that's again kind of a significant marker that we'll see. Um, in just a little bit, amongst uh, a few other things, and so um, again, you know, there, there's kind of pros and <laughs> pros and cons, right? You know, I remember uh, I keep saying it's like it's like story time, right? You know, but I mean, when when you apply to like when you're you're coming from seminary and you're applying to different churches, you know, even like certain pastors that um, 
people were like, yeah, he's kind of a tough one to work for. <laughs> um, you're like, is that, well then, you know, why are they leading a church? But they're leading a church because they're a gifted communicator. He wrote several books, you know, on the family and, you know, all these different things. Um, and so, but, you know, his character probably had significant flaws to it. So there are those things where it's like, well, because you can teach, does it also make you this elder? And again, within the church, I mean, it was usually those things are, are, are complementary with one another. But there are those that teach that are not elders. And we even saw, again, the idea of the, the apostles that, that aren't elders as well. Um, even when Paul was talking in Acts chapter 20, right? Remember, he, he went and reminded them um, uh, what he did within his ministry when he met with them. He said that um, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public from house and from house to house. Again, that was like his example of what he did and kind of like how that teaching and, and uh, exhortation can happen. And then he says to them, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So, again, that importance of like where the word of God sits within being able to accomplish what you need to accomplish within the church because there are people who come in that if sound doctrine is not being taught, there will be people who will teach their own doctrine. Um, so we're only halfway through the list, right? We can see certain qualities, again, that are, are winsome and attractive, being approachable, put together, well-behaved, able to give wisdom and counsel, right? These are all quality, important qualities of, of leaders within the church. Um, and again, Timothy are tasked, Timothy and Titus, we see, are both tasked at appointing elders that, and to be looking out for these qualities, right? To think like what, you know, what is something that is characteristic of a person that would be a good leader within the church because they're going to be leaving and the church will be in the hands of this leadership. So again, not somebody who's just, you know, successful in the world's eyes, makes money, dresses well, is funny or charming, but somebody who has character qualities that is reflective of um, uh, somebody that should be a shepherd and really an under-shepherd, if you think of Jesus as the shepherd and overseer. So sometimes that word under-shepherd is used of these overseers because Christ is our shepherd over the entire church. So, we'll just pause here because we've got a few more things to go through. Um, some of the negative qualities that would pull someone out of not being above reproach and what those look like. And then we'll see if we can get to also what it looks like to, um, for those that are deacons within the church and uh, understanding how that is helpful within the body of Christ. Any questions on what we've talked about?